Hi there, in this episode, Diamati and I discuss Suzuki's essay, The Mio Konin, which is found in his Selected Works, Volume 2. The Mio Konin is the saint of Shin Buddhism, and in the essay, Suzuki discusses two Mio Konin, first Doshu, uh, who died in 1516, and second Asahara Saichi, uh, who lived between 1850 and 1932. We discussed, first of all, Doshu's 21 resolutions, and in particular, Doshu was concerned with the notion of Ichidaiji, or the one great matter. After, we discussed Saichi's poems. Amongst many others, we discussed the following. How happy I am, Amida's seal is stamped in my heart, the seal called Namu Amida Butsu, the seal of Oyasama, the loving parent, his child has received and simply says, Namu Amida Butsu. So we read this quite long essay, wasn't it, on the Mio Konin, and Suzuki introduces two figures, two Mio Konins, who were actually a long period apart, weren't they, um, in terms of their life. So one was a contemporary of, of Renyo, um, and the other one was much more recent. I'm just trying to find, yeah, the, uh, find the dates now. Can you remember the dates? Doshu died in 1516. They don't know when he was born. Right. He was an attendant, I guess, of Renyo. And right. then um, Asahara Saichi was 1850 to 1932. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. he was actually a contemporary of Suzuki. He was an older contemporary of D.T. Suzuki. That's interesting. Yeah, so, um, so they, they belong to two completely different time periods. And uh, first of all, I was kind of interested in why he picked two people who are so far historically apart. Um, it, it, on the face of it, it seemed to me a bit of a strange decision. Um, and I, I would imagine sort of picking a couple of people who lived at a similar time or, or so, but um, I don't know whether he particularly explains, does he, what, why he's partic- picked these two particular Miyokonin as, as opposed to any others? No, and, and, and another um, difference is that Doshu was um, more of a, he was a, a scholar. Right. Uh, well-educated. So it kind of breaks the mold in a way of what you think of the Myokonin as an ordinary person. And then Asahara Saichi was, was a, um, well, a carpenter or something uh, uh, who, who uh, used a plane to make a getha, you know, those Japanese wooden shoes and, um, and, and wrote little sayings on shavings. And I don't know how they were eventually collected. I don't, know, I don't remember whether Saichi himself, after writing them on the shavings, somehow collected them and transferred them to a more endurable medium. He wrote his poems on wood shavings. Right. Wow, that's quite right. something, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah so, I mean, so, so when he was, he was working all day using a, using a plane that would shave down um, pieces of wood so that they would eventually take those shoes, um, you know, those just flat bottom shoes. And, um, and then he, uh, yeah, he wrote these little 
sayings. I mean, and Suzuki even at one point says, they're not really poems because they're too short really even to be poems. And, and it seems that most of the um, sayings of Saichi that he cites, at least in this article, were really about half of the content was the phrase, Namo Amida Butsu. Yeah. <laughs> so well, it's sort of like, it's raining today, Namo Amida Butsu. <laughs> so what about if we look at the Doshu part first? Yeah. Um, so from my reading, um, Suzuki actually gave a lot more time uh, and space to the second uh, Myokonin, but he, he does start off with Doshu, as, and as you said, uh, Doshu was an educated person, uh, a lettered person, which again seems like a strange choice because the, the, it would seem like the classic vision of the Myokonin is some kind of unlettered saint uh, uh, who you know, has some deep insight, but is not burdened by, you know, ecclesiastical uh, knowledge or, or what have you. Uh, but anyway, he starts with uh, Doshu and um, he begins with a sort of general, general introduction, general commentary um, about Doshu's life and his relationship to, to Renya. Uh, I wondered whether there was anything in there that caught your attention. Well, well one, one thing that he that he says about Doshu that may be the answer to the question of why these two people were chosen is that Doshu was a man of deep faith. And, and, it's, and so maybe what he's trying to convey by this choice is that deep faith does not have a demographic um, correlation. You know, that you can have a highly educated man of many centuries ago in a, in a modern contemporary um, uh, craftsperson, craftsman who's, and they're both people of deep faith. Maybe, maybe that's why he chose these two, precisely because they were so different. That, that sounds uh, a good explanation to me. Um, so in terms of what he says about um, Doshu, there was one sort of anecdote, if you like, that, that drew my attention that um, Suzuki uh, recounts, which is where uh, Doshu is weeding, it seems, he's weeding in the field, um, and a priest comes up and kicks him over, uh, and Doshu gets up and continues weeding, and the priest kicks him over again. Mm -hmm. uh, and Doshu gets up again and, and carries on uh, weeding. And then the, the, this time, you know, the, the priest is like infuriated because he's not got a reaction out of uh, a Doshu. And the priest asks, so for, for no reason at all, someone comes up and kicks you down, yet you don't show any anger. In what region do you exist? Uh, and Doshu, Doshu replies, um, I I do it to pay the debts of my former existence. I probably have many more still to pay. Mm -hmm. And I was quite interested in that language of, of debt, if you like, and having a debt to pay. And uh, Suzuki comments on that idea of a debt. And he says, uh, we all shoulder the burden of this debt and it must at some point be paid. The debt is this present existence the individual self. Therefore, the existence, this existence must be overturned 
and penetrated to its core. We must at some point succeed in leaping from the individual self to the supra individual self. Um, so I sort of, I don't know, I was quite struck by that metaphor, if you like, of debt. Um, I suppose it, it, it easily relate, you could, you could relate it to karma. And maybe even some people would, would see it almost a bit fatalistic. But to me, it kind of more relates more generally to this idea of indebtedness, um, that we're always in debt in a sense. Um, and that often, I think human beings want to think that they don't owe anything to anyone. Uh, people say that sometimes, you know, I, I, don't, I don't owe anything to anyone. Um, and that might be literally true that they haven't incurred debts. Um, but we've all acted unskillfully. And in a sense, that has incurred a debt that we need to uh, repay or, or resolve. And even without that, it seems to me that all of the other things that people have done for us uh, leave us in an indebted uh, state. You know, even just things like people feeding us um, or clothing us or uh, what have you. Um, so I, I guess I was quite struck by the mentality that that might produce the idea of recognizing your indebtedness and how that might perhaps hopefully produce a certain well, gratitude and humility. I, not, I wasn't so much thinking of kind of guilt and feeling like, you know, you're really sinful, but more like feeling that you're, you've received a lot um and that calls forth a response um so that was the reflection that i had yeah yeah i like that that reflection i yeah i i was um i hadn't really thought of the 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 aspect of in, indebtedness but now that you draw attention to it i really i really like what you uh, what you say about it when when i when i heard read that story it was um the focus was on the very fact that you've been born shows that you have a a karmic debt a karmic yeah. load absolutely I, yeah i was reminded of a, a friend of mine who somebody who was a graduate student at mcgill when i was when i was there he's now a professor um and um in he's a, he's a catholic um but he know he knows quite a bit about other religions, and he has he used to he he loves to uh, to tease other people, and one time I I um, I wish someone a happy birthday in 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 in, uh, in his presence, and he said he said, well, from a Buddhist point of view, being born is a terrible failure. I mean, you know, <laughs> it means in your in your previous life, you failed to achieve nirvana. <laughs> so, so why do you go around congratulating people and wishing them a happy birthday? Well, although on the other hand, you could argue that also the human birth is a positive achievement. Um, you right. know, following the Tibetan reflection on the precious human birth, the fact that we've been born into a human body that more or less functions right. and into contact with the Dharma and so on and so forth. These At least are, you're not a garden slug or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> These are great blessings, yeah, uh, for us, yeah. And um, just to kind of follow through a bit further on the idea of debt and repaying the debt, um, Suzuki actually goes on a bit further to talk about the transference of merit. merit. 
Uh, and one, I think a, a, a common um, reflection of Suzuki's is around the two types of transference of merit. So what's called the Oso Echo and the Genso Echo. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the Oso Echo is like re receiving, well, it depends how you understand it, but I think Shinran would understand it, or let's say Shinran understands it as you receiving um, Amida's merits. So in, 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 in earlier Pure Land Buddhism, that, that, that part, the, um, uh, the Oso Echo, was you transferring your own merits to your future birth in the Pure Land, right? Right. Uh, but in Shinran, it's actually uh, Amida transferring his merits to you, if you like, to supplant your, well, uh, to replace any merit that you had because you didn't really have any. So anyway, that's the first thing. But then you've got what's called the Genso Echo, which is where, where you, having received um, these merits, want to um, kind of return to the world to help others, if you like. Um, um, so that's where the kind of indebtedness comes in, if you like. So you, you receive this fantastic gift. And because of your gratitude and sense of indebtedness, you want to facilitate that gift for others, if you like. You want others to have that same uh, opportunity. And, and so what that means then is that the whole vision of... Um, transference of merits and also birth in the pure land is something very very dynamic so it's not that you are reborn in the pure land which is some other world and then you stay there uh there's uh, there's an emphasis on return is what i'm driving at an emphasis on return in a compassionate way to try and help others or to be some kind of channel towards amida or, or what have you um an expression of amida and there's something about that that i find very powerful as well, that sort of dynamic between receiving and then wanting to, to give. Yeah. You know, what? This, this really reminds me of, um, well, I suppose you would say it's the main theme of the Confucian classic, the, uh, the classic filial piety. And there, the whole point of that is that the very fact that you're alive um, and, and that you've become that you've survived your childhood um, puts you in debt to your elders to your parents but also to all of your, your aunts and uncles and and in fact all adults who nurtured you along the way enabled you to grow up and that it's a debt so enormous that it can't possibly be repaid to the person to whom you you're indebted so that the only thing that you can do is to well, what, what's nowadays called pay it, pay it forward, you know, you can, um, you can, you can begin to pay off that debt, not to the people who, to whom you're indebted, but by passing your gifts on to the next generation, so that they become indebted to you in the same way. And it's, it's so deeply in, in um, a part of Confucian thought that it, I, I, um, I suspect that that has influenced Suzuki. Um, in fact, almost all, all of Buddhism in, in, that comes from China, Korea, or Japan, or Vietnam is um, so interwoven with Confucian thinking and, 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 and Taoist thinking that it's very difficult to tease them apart. 
That's a, a brilliant connection that you've just made, and I wasn't remotely aware of that. Uh, equally, independently of whether the source of that particular way of thinking is Confucianism, it seems to me to be quite readily um, relatable uh, to Buddhism because it's speaking about interconnectedness, really. Mm -hmm. um, and what I like about it is that sometimes the discourse about karma can seem quite isolated. Um, so it, it's like you in your own karma world kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but the um, to, to what what that um, Confucian insight uh, underlines is the fact that we receive things not because of good stuff that we've done necessarily but rather because other people are kind and, and generous and so on. Um, right. And, and so that uh, brings about a sense of indebtedness in us, us or, and, and perhaps gratitude. I, I was going to mention as well that there are certain qualities that are usually underlined uh, to do with the myoconin. And if I remember, so joy is one, uh, gratitude uh, and indebtedness. Right. Uh, there might be another one which I can't remember offhand. Maybe I'll remember in in a while. Um, but uh, so that these qualities are particularly associated with the myoconin, and as you'll have noticed, they come out quite strongly uh, in relationship to these characters. Like joy is one. Um, I think humility is the other one, actually, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so those are the those are the qualities. Yeah. So. Um, uh, I mean, aside from the fact that then um, Suzuki, this is on page 153, goes on to say the self in any case must be eliminated, uh, which I, I just think is a very, very unhelpful uh, way of talking about things. Uh, I've, I've been going through, uh, again, uh, Bante's seminar on outlines of Mahayana Buddhism, which is you know, written by Suzuki. And this is in the 70s, Bante is talking here, but he's making the point very, very strongly that he thinks it's very, very unhelpful for people to say the self does not exist uh, or you've got to get rid of the self and that's that's, that's really not that helpful. And um, mm -hmm. Suzuki's doing it, well, again here, it seems to me. Um, but anyway, going back to Doshu, um, so we've got this series of 21 uh, resolutions, haven't we, that he made uh, which Suzuki includes. And I wondered whether we could just touch on one or two of those. Yes, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, um, I actually liked these, these resolutions. Um, and as Suzuki points out, from the point of view of Yokonen, who are usually much less systematic, <laughs> or somebody who's regarded as a Yokonen is not, they're, they're, it's more an expression of their own being struck. You know, he uses that ataru, that Japanese verb ataru. They're struck, um, and and so and so it's a kind of an emotional, full-bodied response, and and yet these resolutions are quite didactic, and um, and and I, I as much as I like the resolutions, I wondered why. Why these were chosen as an example of Myokonen. Yeah, um, I'm not, I'm not too, too sure of the answer, but the, the first thing that really called my attention is the, um, is it Ichi Daiji? 
Is that is that correct? Uh, the one great matter. Yes. Um, yes. I'm I'm really really struck by this idea of daiji, or in this case, ichi daiji. Um, yeah. So it's either the great matter or or the one great matter. I find it a very very resonant. Uh, term and you'll notice that Doshu repeats it again and again. Um, it comes up at least four or five times in these uh, resolutions. But it made me think of a couple of things. Uh, it made me think of the language of ultimate concern that I've been using, uh, which I borrowed from Paul Tillich. And it mm -hmm. seems to me to be a very similar kind of notion, um, the great matter. Mm -hmm. And also, it reminds me of a uh, a Rumi poem, uh, and somewhere Rumi says something like, um, uh, "There's one thing that you you have to remember. You can you can forget everything else, uh, but there's this one thing that you have to remember." I, I can't remember the precise words of the poem, and basically, the the one great thing that you've got to remember is kind of why you're here. You know what your life is about, what 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 your ultimate concern is, or uh, or the great matter. And uh, yeah, it interests me that across a number of different places, this idea uh, comes up. Um, and what I like about it is it, it, isn't, um, it isn't dogmatic. It, it's more, it, it seems to me quite an existential idea, the idea of being in touch with the great matter, you know, because it invites the question, well, what is the great matter? Um, and, uh, and I guess in a way, the great matter is engaging with the great matter, isn't it? It's trying to find right. out what that actually means. What what is the great matter? How do I relate myself to it? Um, yeah. I was quite struck by that, and that's actually the first uh, resolution: do not be forgetful of the one great matter. Now, that's what reminded me of uh, of um, Rumi as well. Yeah, and it, it reminds me uh, that phrase is used in in Zen. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, so so there, if within the context of Rinzai Zen, it might mean Kensho or you know you know awakening. Uh, that's the that's the great matter, and in Soto it might be, um, well, remembering your innate awake awakenedness, if that's a word. Um, you're an you're innate enlightenment. Um, yeah, the, the one great matter. That's that's a very powerful phrase. It, it it really surprised me in a way to see it in the context of of um, of um, uh, Jodo because I, I'd never heard this phrase in that context. Yeah, and obviously it's glossed by by the editor as that the great matter being your rebirth in the pure land, and you've just right. given a couple of other more kind of doctrinal or, or dogmatic explanations of daiji or ishidaiji. I guess I'm reading it a bit more existentially. Um, the idea yeah. you know, that, that so the great matter is like the mean, the ultimate meaning of your life, let's put it that way, or the ultimate context of your life and, yeah. being, and being in touch with that. Yeah, the, these uh, intrusions in square brackets that are, that are, Attributed to N.W. and Norman Waddell translated the. Um, I guess he translated Suzuki's article, didn't he? Uh, that's right. Yeah, you're right. Because this article was written in Japanese, um, so Norman Waddell is uh, is offering this advice. I agree. I mean, I I think that that his his um, inclusion of material in square brackets 
is sometimes so obvious that it needn't be stated in other cases overly specific. And here, I think it's the latter. It's just, yeah. as you say, the, the one great matter is, is the one great matter. <laughs> and, and, and to say, oh, by the way, the one great matter is being reborn in the pure land, or the one great matter is Kensho, or the one great matter is remembering your relationship to God, or whatever, you know, whatever it may be is, is overly yeah. interpretive. And, it, and it's notable that he uses the term again several times and he never qualifies it. So he never actually uh, specifies what it refers to. It, it just stands by itself, if you like, as, as, right. as an idea. So, I mean, further forward, I mean, in some ways they were all interesting, these resolutions, but I was quite struck by, I, I'd be interested to see which ones you underlined, but I underlined the resolution 10, uh, where it reads, the very thought that Amida knows the wretchedness in my heart brings me deep sadness and pain. Though I'm well aware he has forgiven me all my prior actions, the fact that he knows my inner state is cause for shame and sorrow. When I think that my heart was anchored in wretchedness in the world before, and now still so, and is now still so, I know a wretchedness beyond description. Even though I chanced to meet Amida, my heart would still remain in wretchedness. A wondrous compassion, I beg forgiveness for my prior transgression. I must entrust myself to your compassion. So it's quite strong. Uh, it's very strong, actually. And, and maybe you might even think, or one might even think, it sounds a little bit Christian. But I think what I was struck by in that was the level of... Um, sensitivity the level of kind of ethical um sensitivity if you like and particularly i think a sensitivity um created or sparked off by imaginatively thinking uh that the buddha Amida, in this case is able to actually see everything that's happening you know in in your thoughts and your emotions mm -hmm. and then because Amida is a wise and compassionate being how ashamed you would feel uh, that Amida was, was seeing you like that, how, how far away from the ideal you are or um, we are. And uh, so I found that quite powerful, um, quite challenging, uh, but powerful. Yeah. And this, this reminds me of, of the, um, the um, well, the traditional Theravadan exercise of Buddha and Smriti, Budan or Sara, um, yeah, uh, which is um, that if you're thinking of yourself constantly of being in the, in the presence of the of the Buddha, think of how ashamed you would be if you were to speak unskillfully uh, or even have a certain kind of thought. And you're, you know, if you, you know, if if the Buddha were with you and knew what you were thinking, think of how deeply ashamed you would be. Um, and, and the, yeah, I, I was, this, this is actually one of the ones that I was, I was very struck by as well. It makes me think in what you've just said, I'm really, uh, interested in how you link that more specifically to, to Buddha Nushmuriti. but I was also thinking of, um, Apatrapya as well as we explored in that book uh, right. last year or so, um, 
And the so the idea that through imagining the Buddha witnessing your state of mind and your actions, that in itself would provoke shame. Mm -hmm. um, that's really quite interesting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I can I can really relate to this in in a, in a much more secular way. In a way, I I was very um, very fond of my my um, maternal grandfather, and uh, and always wanted his approval, and and usually got it. I mean, he, he was he he was um, very fond of me as well, but occasionally I would have some kind of an uncharitable thought about someone else, and immediately I would think, oh my God, what if my grandfather knew I was thinking this? <laughs> and it would it would just fill me with such such a sense of remorse that I'd even had had this thought. Um, and it, it was, it's, it's, it's actually very effective, you know, if, if you can maintain that kind of, um, that kind of notion that somewhere that, that your, your thoughts are not as private as you think, your actions are not as private as you think, and, and um, somewhere some, some, somebody knows what you're thinking, and if it's someone that you admire and, and that, well, in this case, actually worship, just what a terrible thing it would be if um, that person knew. <laughs> it's quite a terrifying prospect that you're hiding there. Um, yeah. So you, you said that this um, uh, resolution 10 was one of the resolutions that caught your attention. Um, how about any others? I actually, um, was so struck by these that I that I that I put my um, <laughs> put the entire batch of them and and sort of drew a line down the page next to them because but but I was um, I was within the same one I was struck by particular sentences one of which you just read but I mean you read the entire thing but when I think that my heart was anchored in wretchedness in the world before and is now still so. I know a wretchedness beyond description. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so it's that theme of Oof. acknowledgement of one's um, unworthiness. You know, you're, you're, you're sort of this, this notion that you're, you're taking up space, <laughs> that, uh, that you're not really entitled to do. And, and the, the theme of shame also comes up in number 12. I wonder if wonder does not rise fully in your heart, you should consider it shameful and wasteful and resolve that though you starve to death or freeze to death, you will attain ojo and you should decide the one great matter in this present existence, the fulfillment of your desire from beginningless kalpas in the past and press yourself resolutely in order to recover your sense of wonder. So there it's the, you know, the sense of wonder, which is another theme that we find in Shin Buddhism, but that if you lose that sense of wonder, then you should feel ashamed and you should feel that it's wasteful. Again, the theme that you're, you're wasting your life if you're not in touch with that sense of wonder. 
Yeah, I mean, I was very struck by that as well. And I underlined that whole uh, resolution. And what stood out for me was uh, this idea of wonder, um, which uh, struck me very powerfully. Um, that the, if you like, it seems to be saying that the, the religious condition, the religious attitude um, always has a dimension of wonder uh, within it. Um, right. I found, uh, I, I don't know whether wonder is sufficiently talked about sometimes, um, it, you know, because wonder is like, there's something very fresh about it, isn't there? And I think it also is very much about the imagination. Um, it's a very, I think, appreciative uh, attitude, wonder. It's kind of like the opposite of taking things for granted or, um, yeah, just seeing things as ordinary, if you like, which we, we often do. Um, yeah. So I was really quite struck by that. And it ties in in a way to, to, to this theme that we've seen before of um, seeing things as if you're seeing them for the first time, right. which is exactly the opposite of taking them for granted. You're just, I mean, you see a flower and it's, it's just sort of, goodness, what a thing this is, you know, instead of just sort of, oh, the flower and then walking on, you know. And one of the things that in that, in that same passage, number 12, that, that really struck me was if you do lose that sense of wonder, then he has a certain things that you should do. But one of them is, the, the very last one is, if even then wonder is not obtained, consider that you're probably being punished by the Buddha. Break through your laxity and praise the Dharma to fellow devotees, because those acts at least should be matters of wonder. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the cure to your lack of wonder is, is to preach the Dharma, you know, to, yeah. just, yeah. to remind someone else yeah, that's, of the Dharma. That's really interesting, yeah. And as I'm thinking about wonder and, and also kind of wondering about, uh, not wondering about, wondering about, uh, and relating that to the great matter. So it seems to me to what I'm trying to say is that to approach the great matter requires a sense of wonder and expresses a sense of wonder uh, because we are wondering about uh, the meaning of existence, the meaning of our existence. And so in order to approach the great matter, wonder is one of the necessary components, if you like, of our attitude. And well, he seems to be indicating, doesn't he, that it, it needs to be an ever-present uh, dimension of, of your state of mind. He's not, he, he's not suggesting that it's just optional. It's right. very central. That seems to be what he's saying there. Yeah, that, that word, wonder, is, is one that itself has become um, debased in a way by just being overly overused, such as... You know, I, I saw, I heard a wonderful song this morning or something. You know, we just kind of throw it out as meaning something pleasing or good, yeah. I, I suppose. But yeah. to think of something as being wonderful, yeah, it's really quite a strong statement if, if the word is, is, has, has not become uh, something that one takes for granted. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking of the... Um... The Elvis song, it's the wonder of you. Um, right. Quite a nice phrase, I think. Right, um, right, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I think you're right that it is, um, it has been somewhat uh, debased. Yeah. I kind of see where, where it came from, uh, the word wonder. He says in 14, do not make excuses for not having friends. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know exactly what that means, but I, but it, but it, but it, what it, what occurred to me was that that people may um, fall into to a habit of blaming others. I mean, the reason I don't have any friends is because those idiots don't realize how great I am, or something. Oh, yeah. Like well, I think that's quite common. Yeah. 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 But I, do not make excuses for not having friends. Encountering those of your household. Though they may not be conscious of the Dharma, direct their attention to it as best you can. Above all, ask them about the one great matter and be attentive to retaining a sense of wonder in your hearts. Yeah, I really like that too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, almost like a sense of shared wonder in, in through through friendship. Um, uh, so um, reminding of each each other or helping each other to contact this sense of wonder right. that's kind of a way that i'd understand kalyanamitrita mm. uh, helping one another to get in touch with what the great matter wondering about the great matter yeah were there any of the other um resolutions that you were interested in or should we move on um yeah i, th I think the 21st one very nicely wraps up themes that have been running in the in the previous 20, oh, this wretched heart, if I'm to resolve the one great matter, I cannot think of the fate of this existence. Wherever I'm ordered to go, I must go. I must resolve even to journey to China or to India in search of the Dharma. Compared with such resolution, is there anything so easy as following the way of Amida? Considering, consider deeply the transience of the world. One is not long upon this earth, starving from hunger or freezing to death, makes little difference. Do not think twice about such considerations and constantly work for the one great matter. Do not go against these resolutions. Strive, be attentive, never breach the laws and rules of society. Preserve within your heart the reliability and blessedness of the one thought while outwardly acting with deep humility toward others. And, and, and uh, if the biographical information that was given about Doshu is, is correct, I mean, they talk of him traveling across these um, very dangerous mountain passes that were covered with ice, where a single misstep, he could fall a thousand feet to his death. And he, he went every day to, um, to visit a temple, or he would go to Kyoto um, another long and arduous journey in his day. Uh, and so he, he really did these things. I mean, he, people were astonished at how much, um, how much persistence he showed in showing his devotion. Yeah, um, I, I really like that passage that you read as well. It's, um, yeah. it's really quite, quite dense and full of uh, depth and, and meaning. Um, and I, I guess it speaks to me of, of something like the um, the sort of lack of compromise, if you like, or the, the wholehearted uh, commitment uh, to the great matter. You know, it's not it's not something that you just do in your spare time. It's like the key priority, uh, and therefore, 
that means that you're willing to do what is necessary. You know, if it means going to China or India, then be prepared to do that. Um, I, I, I'm quite struck by that um, uh, yeah, very wholehearted uh, attitude. Uh, mm -hmm. But also the bit at the end as well, preserve within your heart the reliability and blessedness of the one thought itching in. Um, I guess the one thought there must relate to Shinjin, I would think. Um, mm -hmm. Itching in is a word that's used uh, in several places by Shinran, and it does refer to the, the one thought moment in which Shinjin arises uh, or in which you you kind of contemplate Amida Buddha, you connect with Amida Buddha, basically, I guess the, maybe you could say it's the moment when the meaning of your existence becomes clear to you. You know, there's a, there's a moment of clarity. Um, and, but I like these words, reliability and blessedness. So kind of trust in the fact that that insight is something you can rely on and also that it, it creates or brings about this condition of blessedness or adhisthana, we could say, you know, feeling blessed uh, because we've been grasped by the mind of the Buddha. Right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you uh, uh, reminded me. I'd, I'd forgotten that, um, that, that notion in, in uh, Shinran, the connection of Inan with the, um, with the moment of the, yeah. the moment of, of clarity. Right, yeah, I, sp I suppose it's a kind of sudden awakening type model, isn't it? So there's like a spark um, that happens. Right. And right. I think we, we often have the idea that somehow our spiritual insight should be something that's very, very continuous, that we're coursing in, you know, insights all of the time. But what, what, well, I'm just thinking about this now, but the way that I'm reading that is that it's more like there are occasional flashes and the key is to remember them uh, and mm -hmm. to return to them, if you like, and to continue to, uh, to allow them to have their effect. You know, it, again, it, it reminds me of that, that thing from William James about uh, a religious person is not someone who has religious experiences, but who makes those experiences the center of their life. It's a bit of a right. phrase, but it's something along those lines. And so it's like really paying attention to the significance of these uh, moments, sort of really uh, cherishing them, if you like, as gifts. And I, I noticed that myself in my own life, that actually every now and again, some little spark of connection, little spark of an insight arises. And then obviously it goes, it goes away again. And often what I do is I seek for more sparks um, rather than, just simply returning to that one, if you like, and then uh, it being refreshed. Um, and a particular moment I can think of that actually I have returned to quite a few times was when I was in uh, Gukuloka, it was almost three years ago now, in, in, uh, yeah, in April it will be three years ago, and I was on an ordination course about to do the private ordinations at Rutramati and Achilamati, and I had this sort of awareness of the supreme value of the order of ordination and of the fact that I'd really done the right thing. I'd made the right decision mm -hmm. in not only getting ordained, but staying ordained and, and so on and so forth. Um, and it was a really, really strong 
awareness, um, insight, if you like, um, which I'm not quite in touch with now, but I kind of can return to it. You know, I can return to it and there's, there's still energy there, if you like. It's not exactly repeating it or um, uh, experiencing the moment that I experienced then, but that I, yeah, there is a way in which I can return to it and it still has an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, well, should we, should we move on then to Asahara Saichi? Yeah. So this bit was quite a bit longer, wasn't it? Um, quite a long section. And it's a bit different as well because it's mainly um, Suzuki will quote a little poem and then he'll give an analysis, analysis of it. And that's how it continues. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was a... He was a shipwright, okay, and, and then at the age of 50, he began making uh, getha type of wooden clog. So, okay, so he was a shipwright. But it, yeah, I, um, this is to, to start with a very general impression of this, this section of the, of, the, uh, of the chapter, of the, I guess, which was originally, this was originally a chapter in a book, right? Um, the same, the same book. On, on Japanese spirituality, um, the po- the poems, if they are poems at all, are very short, mm. and Suzuki's expansion of the meaning of them is very long, and um, and in in in, in many cases, um, kind of weighted down with with. Um, with a tendency to try to make it into a Zen-like um, insight that had been expressed very concisely, and um, I, I, I felt that he was, first of all, it was it was much too intellectual, and, and kind of you know ironic in a way because he's constantly talking about the um, the inadequacy of the intellectual approach, and it, it at one point says, well, we we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, feel that we can dismiss the intellectual approach altogether as being useless, but we have to remember that that unless it's also connected with the emotional component, the intellectual approach is is kind of barren. But but he, he, you know he he uh, he speaks about the inadequacy of the intellect in a very intellectual way. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I think Bante notices that in his own commentaries as well that. Um... Uh, well, he he's, he feels that sometimes Suzuki goes from one extreme to the other, and he hasn't really kind of resolved the relationship between the intellect and emotion in his own life. Um, right, right. Um, but I, I I certainly get what you're saying. I found myself at times reading the the analyses or commentaries and feeling quite unengaged by them. Mm-hmm. I think at times I felt that he was really overreading uh, what was being said, um, and at other times I just thought it just didn't particularly engage me. Um, right. But some of the poems, if you like, in themselves, a few of them, uh, did uh, catch my attention. Um, the first thing, actually, that I noticed, this is quite early on in the in the section, um, is under section two, the Namu Amida Butsu poems. Uh, And he quotes this poem, which is, whenever I chance to meet with joy, 
both time and place left unspoken. I am joyful. You are joyful. That is the pleasure. Namu Butsu. So I guess, first of all, I, I was struck by this whole idea of joy um, and that being one of the uh, notable characteristics of the Myokonin. But I actually, in this case, also liked uh, what Suzuki says about it. Uh, and so below he says, Saichi's joy is not a conscious product of his individual self. In it, the participation of the supra-individual person can be see, perceived with utmost clarity. So I was really, I was really quite struck by that. Uh, clearly, the supra-individual person um, is Amida or the mind of the Buddha. Uh, so, but this idea then of, of joy as not self-generated, but as uh, something that is gifted to us that we're receiving. Um, I was quite struck by that idea. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I liked the poem that's on the bottom of page 163 and continues on to 164. How happy I am. Amida's seal is stamped in my heart. The seal called Namo Amida Butsu, the seal of Oyasama. Um, and, and he talks about the, you know, this, this uh, theme of parent, um, of the, of the parent throughout the seal of Oyasama, his child has received and simply says, Namo Amida Butsu. You know, that I, I really, I really loved that. Um, it was, one of the, one of the longer and more substantial of of um, Saichi's um, writings. It must have been a very large wood shaving. <laughs> he was <laughs> able to inscribe that. All that up. How happy I am! Amita's seal is stamped in my heart. The yeah, that's very, it's a very strong image as well, isn't it? It is. Amita's seal is stamped on my heart. Is that what you read? Yeah, that is really interesting. I don't know if, whether we've talked about this before, but th this reminds me of a metaphor or an image that I've come across in Sufism. Uh, actually, uh, Padma Vajra sent me this uh, short Sufi text, and it uses the metaphor of being burnt or, yeah. or being branded. Being branded, yeah. Uh, so, so the idea, you know, something impacts on you so, so strongly and brands you this idea of the seal you know because it's a seal is like a stamp isn't it like uh, yeah, they put right. it put it into wax uh, is that right um so yes, you have exactly yeah the seal you have what hot wax and you put the seal in and it just embeds itself it embeds its um, form into the wax and that seal being imprinted on the heart that's a really really strong image yeah and in in, in japanese culture um it, I don't. I don't know if it's still this way, but when I was when I was living there, it was forty years ago, forty five years ago, now. But uh, everyone carries a little um, seal with them, and and uh, and and a uh, an ink pad. And, and and here it's not making an impression in wax, but it's it's making an imprint. You touch the seal to your ink pad, and then and it's. It's what's used in place of a signature, um, and and I, and I know that you know. For example, if you go to the bank, <laughs> anything that requires some acknowledgement that it was really you, um, 
you your seal is what you use. And sometimes people found it a little odd that I didn't have a seal, you know, that I would just sign sign my signature and they're sort of like, what's that? You know, it doesn't prove anything. <laughs> and, I, and I used to think of think of it, I mean, but, but your seal really is your identity. It's, right. Okay, so th this has actually got even more significance then. So you're, you're saying, uh, so given that everyone carries around with them their own seal, yeah. as though a meter with his seal right. has imprinted uh, that seal onto our heart. That's what you're right. saying. So wow. He, so he, he has, so Amita's seal has verified, you know, it really was Amita who was, I mean, it's an amazingly powerful image. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And then the seal is called Namu Amida Butsu. Yeah. That's so the, that yeah, that Namu Amida Butsu is the is the seal that's stamped on, you know, that, that's the the authentic uh, sign, the signature, the signature of Amida. Um, it's interesting how we can kind of lose touch with certain images or um metaphors because I'm thinking now that the metaphor the image of a seal is used and not not the animal but the the imprint uh is used in a number of places in buddhism and i'm aware that until we've had this conversation right now i don't think i've quite captured imaginatively the power of that um, mm -hmm. the idea of a seal and what a seal does and what it uh what it symbolizes and well particularly in the case of japan as you just pointed out the way in which uh everyone has their own seal which is a kind of um uh similicrum is it it's like a kind of um or is it an avatar i don't know anyway it kind of it's them in a way you know it's right, a, right. Kind of a, a mini them uh, i just remember watching a video about that recently for some strange reason uh, it, i think it was about banking or something and uh, lots of japanese people were expressing their frustration about the fact that they had to carry a seal with them all the time because if they forget it, then it has quite a lot of implications for what um, what things they can do and what they can't do. Uh, so they have to carry it around with them the whole time. Yeah. And, and why not just use your signature? It was the uh, was what some people suggested. But um, right. Anyway. Well, so something about the the seal that the that that used to um, cross my mind all the time was. Um, well, you can forge a signature. I mean, that's, there are people who do that and, uh, and become very good at it. But, but I thought all you have to do is go into a, a little a store that sells seals <laughs> and have one made and um, or, or perhaps even buy a ready-made one that has, you know, your surname on it, which would, which would be a common Japanese name. And you could pretend to be pretend to be a meter and uh... right, right, right. So so you you could you, you could just pretend to be anybody if you if you had a, uh, a few seals on on you and, and and I thought this this doesn't guarantee much of anything. Right. But then I remembered something one of the earliest encounters I one of my first days in Japan. I was with a, a Canadian friend. Uh, somebody whom I'd known very well at University of Toronto, and and he was he was living in Japan and had been for some time. And we got together and went to a park and um, a big, huge 
uh, public park in, in uh, Tokyo. And a loudspeaker came on and it said, the park is closed, please leave the park. And everybody in the park started walking towards an exit. And I, and I turned to my friend and I said, what if people just said, I'm not going, I'm gonna stay here. And, and he just looked at me and he said, in Japan, that is unthinkable. <laughs> and and, and I, I think that's exactly the answer to this to the seal. It's just unthinkable that you would use somebody else's seal. Wow. Or, you know, it's just honesty is so deeply embedded in the Japanese way of doing things that you just can't even, you can hardly even form the thought of deviating from what's proper. Um, okay, so, well, moving ahead a little bit, um, I see that I didn't underline that many places but the 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 other area or one area that interested me was Saichi's view of rebirth in the pure land yeah and, uh suzuki <laughs> argues that his idea of birth in the pure land is not literal yeah what were you going to say no I, I was i was just going to say that i was scrolling down and, and exactly that passage is, is the next one that i had <laughs> underlined as well um, so the particular poem that I underlined was the one, this is on page 166, where he says, uh, you don't go to the Pure Land after death, you go there before the end has come, entrusting to Namida, Namu Amida Butsu, Namu Amida Butsu. And I was quite interested in this, um, you go there before the end has come. Uh, yeah. if, if you might remember that in my book, I've introduced a bit the idea of prolepsis. Yes. Uh, uh, and I see prolepsis as being quite um, common, if you like, in Pure Land language, uh, maybe not just in Pure Land, maybe in Zen as well, but, but certainly in Pure Land. And there's something very, very intriguing about it that continues to fascinate me. Uh, this idea of talking about the future as though it's the present or as though it's already happened. There's something quite, it kind of shakes you around a little bit in a way that, that interests me. Um, yeah. and so this seems to speak to that a little bit. Um, so you, you go to the Pure Land before the end has come. It's almost, in a way, it sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Uh, and, yet, and yet not. I, I suppose what I take from it is that we shouldn't understand the pure land as cosmologically or, or certainly exclusively cosmologically, but more as a symbol for a transformation of mind. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I was kind of intrigued with this um, entrusting Sumite, Sumite and, and, uh, and Suzuki said the meaning of that word is uncertain. Right. But the implication seems to me that once you've entrusted yourself to or are occupied with other minor considerations need not concern you or cause you worry. Um, yeah, yeah this, this, is, this is said more directly than, than um, a good many other things that we've encountered, that the pure land is really something that you enter through devotion expressed through Namu Amida Butsu, but it's, it's not... But it, and it, it's immediate. It's 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 here now. Yeah. Uh, there then. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, that's good. And there's there's a couple of other poems a little bit further forward that take this uh, still further. So on 167, um, there's a poem that says, received, my heart makes its first visit to the pure land, right. then returns to the foulness of the Shabba world, sent back to work for the salvation of all beings. So it kind of makes the uh, the going and return uh, that is kind of going to the pure land and returning to this world more an existential process rather than a, lit a literal process that happens after death and then rebirth. I was quite intrigued by that. Right. Uh, and then further down, um, he says, I was very struck by this, you have seized the end of my life, my death, my funeral all over, the joy yeah. that follows, Namu Amida Butsu. I know. Um, yeah. And just to read the other one that also, because it's very closely linked. Death has not yet come, but that is no wonder. It has already passed. The end of life is past. Namu Amida Butsu. Very yeah. struck by those. And I, and I thought that uh, Suzuki's, Suzuki's um, well, preamble was to that was, Saichi saw himself as someone who had long before finished the business of dying. So naturally for him, the question of after death does not exist. He's no longer wondering, and so, sorry, he's no longer wandering about in the region of birth and death. So his, his death is the death of his ordinary self. Right, okay, yeah. 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 And, yeah. and uh, yeah. now that that's out of the way, there's really, there's really no, there's no reason to be concerned with the end of breath in your physical body or the thoughts in your mind. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, I, was, I was particularly struck though as well by the language again, you have seized the end of my life. So how can somebody seize the end of your life? Uh, because the end of your life hasn't happened. So how can it be seized? That's the first thing. But then also yeah. death has not yet come. It has already passed. So again, it's this sort of uh, this contradiction. Something hasn't happened, and yet it has already happened at the same time. Um, right. Uh, and I'm quite quite struck by that language. And I think one way to read it all is in the way that you just read it. And I also see something like about. It's like it expresses a sense of um, is it would I say certainty or the fact that life will definitely go in a certain direction. It's going to play out in a very particular way uh, from mm -hmm. on. Um, so if somebody has seized the end of your life, in this case, Amida, it implies that, to my mind, that Amida is sort of directing where your life goes somehow, uh, how it's going to end up. Uh, and um, yeah, and well, maybe the death has not yet come. It has already passed. Maybe what that's saying is that, as you said, the physical death of the body hasn't happened, but the spiritual death of abandoning self-power has happened. Mm -hmm. um, and, and therefore, uh, he's embraced Namu Amida Butsu, the, the name Butsu. Yeah, yeah the, end, the end of Saichi, the ordinary person is, is, is finished, and the, the real Saichi has now stood up, you know, um, who happens to be Amida. And yet, not not Amida. <laughs> you know, I, 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 
I do like the way that Suzuki returns several times in, the, in these commentaries to the paradox of we're all we're, we're one and yet different. You know, we're we're one and yet two. Um, so, as Saichi, as Saichi, I'm I'm Amida, and yet I can't be Amida because I'm receiving from Amida. So we have to be we have to be different. So we're both one and, and two. Oh, that's that's really good. Yeah. There, there was a passage uh, that I underlined and and then put a big question mark next to because I was just so puzzled by it. Let me see if I can find it. It's well along. It's toward the toward the end, I think. Let me see if I can. Okay, it's it's on page one seventy eight, and and it's 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 uh, returning. It's a it's a theme that that occurs in a number of Buddhist texts, Mahayana texts, that enlightenment is delusion and delusion is enlightenment. The kleshas themselves are, are nirvana, that, that kind of statement. Um, and so the poem reads, though I am an eternal illusion, my Oya-sama is an eternal Oya, joyous gratitude, Namu Amida Butsu. So though I am an eternal illusion, sort of like the kleshas, you know, the, I guess illusion is, is maybe the, the flagship of the kleshas collectively. They're eternal. And yet my Oyasama is, is an eternal uh, parent. My, 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 my guardian parent is an eternal parent. Joyous gratitude, Namo Amida Butsu. Then Suzuki writes this paragraph, says, if ignorance was eternal, you could never be rid of it. If enlightenment was eternal, you could never fall into ignorance. But enlightenment is the eternal Oya. So here he's identifying the parent as enlightenment itself. The substance of Amida's eternal prayer or vow. Hence it is within this prayer alone that enlightenment and illusion are one that's the i mean everything up to there is okay but this one sentence just really really puzzled me hence it is within this prayer alone that enlightenment and illusion are one a person steeped in ignorance receives this great favor receives this as the great favor the buddha's favor from this a free and unobstructed interpenetration takes place do you have any um well i hadn't looked at this closely before you drew attention to it but what what came to mind particularly through the poem so this idea though i am in eternal illusion my oya summer is an eternal oya is the idea that uh the awakening to shinjin or the awakening to our identity to amida is always something happening in the present uh, and never becomes a past fact to be looked back on. Um, so in other words, we don't get to a point where we can look back and think, I used to have ignorance and I don't now. Um, the, the awakening uh, it, to your own ignorance is something that's always happening now. Uh, and the other dimension of that is that, well, that, that is happening through uh, becoming receptive or, or opening to the blessing of Amida. 
So, and that's always happening now. It's not. It's never something that has happened. That, right. that might be the way that I read that. So the, the way that I read um, eternal is not as like, you know, enduring forever, but more like outside of time as we normally think of it, outside of time considered as duration. Right, right. But I, I have to say that in some ways, um, Suzuki's comment helps me less than the, the poem itself did. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I, 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 my, my reaction was to this was that Suzuki had, um, this was one of, one, of, one of the places where I, I felt that he was just, had lost control of his, of his language. It, it is within this prayer, hence it is within this prayer that alone, that enlightenment and illusion are one. You know, the, the poem itself puts me in mind in a, in a way of the, um, you know, the, the Lanka Avatara Sutra, where there's the, the notion of the Ichantaka, the person who's so depraved that they can't even form the, the thought of, of enlightenment or of, of being good. And it's, it's, I mean, it's really bad news that there are people like that. Or, I mean, they're hopeless people. And, and, then, and then the good news comes is, is that forever, for every Ichantaka, there is an Ichantaka Bodhisattva who will never give up. <laughs> ah, I mean, it's a, good to know. Sorry? That's good to know that. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a, very, uh, it's a very amazing um, theme in, in the Lankavatara. So there are people who are, who are totally hopeless, totally beyond help, unredeemable. But for every one of them, there's a Bodhisattva who will never give up trying to re redeem them. Wow. It, it, seems, it, it seems that here, uh, it's almost as if he is, without using the language of the Achantaka, he's putting him, he's saying of him, that's his condition. I am an eternal illusion. My Oya-sama is an eternal Oya. So that even though that's where I am, I'm never abandoned by this Oya-sama who is going to be, um, and, and who's never going to give up. That's, that's a very powerful image.